Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Jersey Jump Shot, New Jersey's only podcast dedicated exclusively to college basketball in the Garden State. I'm Jerry Carino, and with me, as always, my longtime colleague, Steve Edelson. And it's December 4th, which means it's Rutgers Seton Hall week. And that means, of course, we bring in one of our favorite guests who's back again with us, Fox Sports rising play-by-play man, the media's foremost expert on Big East basketball, and most importantly, an honorary New Jerseyan, John Fanta, who has a big week ahead. He's on the play-by-play call for Rutgers-Seton Hall on Fox Sports 1 with fellow New Jerseyan, Jersey City Zone, Jim Spinarkle as the color analyst. And that's Saturday at 8.30. And John will be with me co-hosting Thursday's annual Hardwood Classic Banquet between these two rivals. It's one heck of a week for us, John. Thank you so much for giving us some time, and welcome aboard. What could go wrong? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, it's that type of week. I mean, look, uh, this is one of my favorite weeks of the year. has become uh, a favorite week. Jerry, you obviously have a lot to do with that, and I, I went to Seton Hall, for those who do not know. Um, I'll get that right out of the way. Rutgers fans, if I, I, I've talked about your program, discussed your program, and, and we'll talk about that as this podcast goes on uh, and appreciate what Steve Peichel's done. He's done a heck of a job in Piscataway. But this is such a great week, uh, and, and it's so awesome that the Garden State Hardwood Classic exists, will continue to exist, has two coaches that care very much about the game. They, you never know what you're going to get the week of a game from from a pair of coaches, but we we all know how much Pykele and Shaheen Holloway, Shaheen Holloway, deeply cares about the game because from from some of the war stories I heard last year, calling that game in at Jersey Mike's Arena, Seton Hall found a way to win, and and you could kind of sense behind the scenes, how much it personally meant to him in his first no year head to find a way to win that game. So it's a terrific week. The banquet Thursday night has become an unbelievable event. No rivalry has that, has that with the two fan bases and now players from the teams, the current team right. coming, coming to the same place, McLuhan's Boathouse in West Orange on Thursday to basically rev up everything. So it is outstanding in every way. And it's an honor to call this game. Right, that's right, John. And you, no one, there's no one who could better be better suited to do this than you. Uh, and so, I want to ask you. Of course, we'll talk about the game in just a moment. But I want to set this up by asking you about the a game you called over the weekend. You're you're in D.C. for TCU Georgetown, and TCU's Emmanuel Miller banks in an off balance buzzer beating three for the win from like 40 feet out. And your call is, "Oh come, oh come, Emmanuel." I mean, it's just epic. How do you come up with that? Well, when I was doing research for the game, Emmanuel Miller for TCU, veteran player for them, uh, and I was looking at his information, and in his bio, it said he's got a tattoo on his left arm that says, God with us. And some people that that, that don't follow uh Christianity or Catholicism might might not uh, totally understand that, but immediately my mind jogs as a, a 
West Side Cleveland raised Catholic boy uh, to yeah, that's Emmanuel. He embraced. He loves his name, and he and he and his name is something that he honors. So I I, I held that in the back of my head. And then this kid is having an insane game. I mean, he is the reason why TCU won the game. One, because he hit an insane shot. His foot was out of bounds. For those who don't know, that's not a reviewable play. Right. The, the shot went in. It was it was incredible. It was one of those shots that you look back on and you say, if that shot goes in, it deserved to count. Well, okay. This kid had an incredible game. And as the game's going on with about seven minutes to go, I, I did think of Emmanuel. And I, I thought of, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. And typically, if if I don't script it, like I don't write it down, right. I, just, I kind of think to myself, oh, that could come in handy if he has some massive dunk to put the game away. Not a banked in three at the buzzer from 30 feet out. <laughs> oh, that, man. That went in. And, you know, sometimes like in that moment, guys, as a play-by-play, you tell yourself your color guy, your analyst is going to react right away. So anything I say could get could get totally blocked by him. So I, I said for the win, the shot goes in. It was perfect. My analyst, Nick Bod, did an amazing job. He reacted to it like any analyst should. We had a one beat. He had been done. And I, I said... I thought to myself, it was it was totally instinctive. This is the time to say those words, and that TCU wins the game. Mm. And I always say, for a great for a call like that, O come, O come, Emmanuel, TCU wins. And and I was always taught if you could say something big in less than ten words, you're doing your job. Perfection, John. Perfection. I want to ask you one more, Steve. Did you want to jump in? You no, I'm just curious now. But listening, that I mean, that was a great story. You know, for like a young announcer out there, maybe listening to this. I mean, clearly you did your homework for that game. I mean, how much time will you spend getting ready for a game? Typically, to to come up with a mo- just a moment like that. It's right, Steve. It's it's such a great question, and and what I'll do. You know, we're, we we are typically moving around quite a bit early in the season from game to game where we're calling two games in three days or three and five. So prep time um, can can change slightly when you're in that type of mode. But for this one, it's a Big East, Big 12 battle game. So I got into D.C. on Friday. I, I started looking at the teams on, on Wednesday night, Thursday, where I'm putting some things together. I have my boards. But I got into DC on Friday. Uh, TCU had not yet landed. I, I I always I would tell a young announcer this: if you're calling a game, whether it's for radio or TV or whatever, um, you know it might be harder when you're a college student. But when you get out of college, it's an expectation that that you could ask to go to a, a practice or a shoot around or a media availability. Be with the team. Spend some time with the team playing in the game. You're going to get a sense of where they are as a team, what their vibe is, who's leading them, who's a bit of a sleeper player, who's someone that the coach is planning to use in the game that maybe nobody expects to play in the game. So you want to get those details. I probably spend three hours a team on my laptop, on my laptop. I'm not spending 10 hours or even eight hours. Basketball is a little bit different. It's easier to prepare for, to be honest. A lot of these teams are playing eight guys. 
Right. But I really, I really dive in and get to know each player, get quotes. I, I try to ask good questions and listen to the coaches when they're talking to us at practice and shoot around. And, and I'll type, I'll transcribe as they're talking to me. And oftentimes I'm not looking back at those notes during the game. It's like an open book test. I have the notes there, but I remember because we had those discussions. We had those conversations. So that's how I do a lot of my prep. What I, what I think is fascinating is the basketball gods sort of unite here. Uh, <laughs> is that I won't need any tea on Saturday night. This is Rucker Seton Hall is the only game on my schedule this week. Oh so baby. It's <laughs> I will I'm you know this is a Super Bowl. This is a a like an NFL game for an NFL broadcaster for me. That's my prep will be every day this week just looking at the latest on this game. All right, let's talk about going back to last year now. Looking back on it, John, your first time calling that game for for Fox. What was what was that experience like? And again, you ended with an, you know a very memorable line when Seton Hall wins this this forty five forty three you know uh, meat grinder, and you come up with uh, a sea of red blue rises. So tell me about what it was like to call the game and where that line came from. It was unbelievable to call that game. I mean, I, I knew it would be a lot of fun, uh, but when you now call New Jersey home and you understand that from house to house or neighborhood to neighborhood, people's fan bases or alignments change, uh, that that one means something. Rucker Seton Hall means something and, uh, more to these people that watch the game, that that are at the game. And, and on that night, uh, because that was a Sunday evening, uh, so you had a lot of people at home that were that were going to watch it. That they 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 couldn't get into Jersey Mike's Arena. It was at a good time from that standpoint. It was right, right. in the early evening window, and uh, you know my phone was buzzing with 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 anything and everything. And you you do know you do know, and you're conscious of the fact that look, I, I am I live in New Jersey now. I always tell people. I could only get a bachelor's degree from one school. Okay. <laughs> you can't go to 12 colleges. You can't go to 15 colleges. Uh, but, you know, you ask any Newhouse grad from Syracuse who's gone back and called a Syracuse game and, you know, they could do that. So for me, like, I don't look at the – when I sit in the play-by-play chair, Rutgers is Rutgers and Seton Hall is Seton Hall. Right. Uh, and I have to do my job. I've got a job to do. And – I didn't, I got to tell you guys, calling that game, a lot of people were like, what a, man, that was a rough game to watch. Or it was, no, 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 no. It was perfect for the rivalry. Yes. That was, that was New Jersey turnpike on a Friday down the shore to a tee. It was rugged. <laughs> it was rugged. It was loud. It was nasty. It was in your face. And it was basically a one possession game for two hours. Okay. And it ended up being 45 to 43. It was not, if, if you were looking for glamour, go out to California. You don't belong in this state. But if you appreciate toughness and grit and physicality, that's what this rivalry provides. And it provided it that night. As for the line, I don't know where the line came from. Okay. Part of, part of this intuition, part of this talent uh, I'll be very candid with you guys, and for the people who roll their eyes, you roll your eyes all you want. Part of this is God given. 
I, I don't understand sometimes how things come to me. That that was out of nowhere. I looked around with right. maybe 20 seconds to go, and I thought to myself, my goodness, there's a, a sea of red here that is going to be really pissed off if <laughs> things don't go their way. Their football season's already been long over, and now they want their state school and basketball to win, and the private school that has an inkling of the budget that they have is on the cusp of doing this in their place in kind of a rebuilding year, and they did it. So that that was really something to call, and even better to call with a Jersey guy who appreciates the game in Jim Spinarkle. You know, I know you've just probably getting into your preparation now, but what do you what do you think are going to be some of the keys on Saturday in this game? Well, Jerry wrote this over the weekend, and I think it's it's pretty point blank. Rutgers has to get more out of their interior. They have to. I mean, Cliff Amore is too talented of a player, frankly, to be going three for 10 against Illinois. They've got to feed him the basketball against the Seton Hall team that that is shorthanded inside. I mean, if Jaden Bediaco is in foul trouble right now, this is a Seton Hall team that's going to struggle on the interior. And they're already at a bit of a disadvantage. They, the front court was always going to be a, an issue for this team. I think Betty Ako's been better than I, I think a lot of people expected. Agreed. But Rutgers, Rutgers has to feed the post. They, they've got to they've got to dictate what happens on the interior. I, you know, they they they're not. It's not like their backcourt has been poor. I mean, Rutgers shot close to fifty percent from three against Illinois. They could shoot it a little bit, and and I think Andre Hyatt's sort of a key there because I thought Hyatt. Watching Rutgers play Georgetown earlier in the season, I thought Hyatt's energy, his aggressiveness, his shot making in the first half, it it, it made that really not much of a game. Right. So he's going to take shots though, and he was taking shots against Illinois, and and that didn't work out. I would expect for Shaheen Holloway to be willing to give up some on the perimeter in order to compensate on the glass here, because you got to rebound. I mean, if you're giving up offensive rebounds to Rutgers, you're in for a very long night. Right. The key for Seton Hall, at the end of the day, it's always going to be what version of Kadari Richmond that they're getting, and if they're getting the Kadari that can play at a high level. But it's it's what the play, the two guys around him are doing. Are Alamir Dawes and Dylan Adewusu supplying productive contributions? If they are, Seton Hall's a team that can win – Games. They can right. with a lot of teams. They can win in the Big East. If those two are disappearing and Dawes has a tendency to sometimes disappear, then Seton Hall becomes a limited team, a very limited team on the offensive end of the floor. You know, it's interesting, John. Dawes and uh, and Hyatt for Rutgers are a lot alike, in fact, in that they're, they're streaky guys who can get hot and really change a game. And when they're cold, it can also change a game, not in your favor. So, that's an interesting little parallel there. I want to ask you, uh, when you go to the Rock Saturday, you know, you have a job to do, and you're, but you're also going to be approached by a million people who want to talk. How do you balance that, that with the work you have at hand? And tell me a story about the nuttiest encounter you've had with a fan as a broadcaster. It doesn't have to be Rutgers or Seton Hall, but I'm sure stuff goes on all the time where you get stopped and people want to talk. I don't know. Maybe we should charge them for bottle service or something Saturday night. We could make a little, <laughs> could make a little money or something. No, I, 
I think that, <clears throat> look, one of the most unique things that, that I've witnessed was <laughs> at the game that we called last year. So uh, because of where you're at, at what will always be the rack. Yes. Because the broadcast location, for those who don't know, and if you don't know where you've been, they, they put the broadcasters elevated. We're, we're in the mid-level with the press. We're, we're on the same level as the press. We're not courtside like a lot of venues would have their talent. Well, that's fun. It's fun to actually be up there. Like, I love the location of it. I actually think it's pretty cool. But when you're so close to the fans, you hear from them. You really <laughs> do. You hear from them. And we heard from two guys who were coming up to us while we were still on the air. One of them got Spinarkle on the back. And it's like, you got to talk about the officiating. You guys have to, you guys have to hold the officials accountable. Oh boy. They're, you know, they're in the bag with the private school. They're in the bag with the Catholic school. We're, I'm, we're, oh. trying, we're trying to get off the air. And, oh. and these two guys are very close to turning Jim Spinarkle into some WWE fighter. Uh, that's how rough that was so so that location you are in the middle of everything but I'll I'll say this as you all know in your jobs uh, this is and this is no different but but I I do feel like when when you're speaking words on TV you're just subjected to more you know uh, in the moment because you you can't think about sometimes what you're going to say and we're always subjected to uh, my uh, my Twitter mentions will probably be explosive on on Saturday night with people who think either I'm a ho- doing a bad job or you know you're you're too one sided with this or too much into that. Nobody thinks that. Nobody thinks you, that. You just gotta go. Well, wait, hold on. Not, no, <laughs> not not nobody ever thinks anything. And look at the state of our country. That's so, true. Good point. Good point. Stay on the straight. You got to stay on the straight path in this and do your job and call the game. People are going to think what they think. You've got to be yourself and 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 do your job. But yes, if you want to hear if I if I hear from the crazies, I do. And this game produces crazy. There you go. You know, speaking of fans, and I see you have orange on. How do you, how do you kind of balance the hoops, hoopla going on now, and your fandom for the Cleveland Browns? Who, correct me if I'm wrong. If the season ended today, are in the playoffs? I thought the um, orange was for Princeton. All right, we'll get to the Tigers in a minute. Go ahead, John. Yeah, exactly. The orange should be for Princeton as well. How do I balance it? Well, they they typically play better. The Browns play better when I'm working, uh, when I can't watch the game. So go figure, because I've watched the last two weeks, and I'm I'm good for next Sunday to watch them again, and they have not played very well the last couple of weeks. I'm a lifelong Clevelander, for those who don't know. I, I, I grew up on the west side of Cleveland. Jersey's been home for the last decade I, because I, I came to New Jersey in 2013 to go to Seton Hall. Uh, and I've stayed out here, met my wife here. It's it's an amazing story, but but I am a, a Clevelander, and that inspired my love for sports and sports broadcasting. Because if you grow up in Cleveland, you live, breathe, sleep, die, Cleveland sports. Everything about it. My childhood was LeBron James getting drafted. That's how I fell in love with watching weeknight NBA games and, and basketball and basketball. If you're in Cleveland, you are a Browns fan. 
whether you know anything about football or not, because the team got taken away wrongly in 1995. And when it's something gets taken away from you, now you will do whatever you can to make sure you're going to keep it. And the Browns would never leave again. That'll never happen again. Art Modell is public enemy number one in Cleveland, and he always will be public enemy number one in Cleveland. Quick, quick 12-second story. Every time Modell's up for Pro Football Hall of Fame enshrinement, there is a Cle- there are two Cleveland writers who go to the Hall of Fame and literally do 30 minutes on why he should not be inducted in the Hall of Fame. Wow. It, it's a brutal, it's a because he's honestly Art Modell's 10 feet into the ground. I mean, he, he's he's yeah. dead. So it's a, it's a that's a wild sports story that happens every single year. And every year those reporters walk out and the Hall of Fame oh, can't put them in. But the Browns are next level. They mean everything to the city. They are the city's team. And making sure that they get into the postseason is, is absolutely everything. So uh, how do I balance it, Steve? I don't know. I'm, in, I'm, I'm insane myself. But I do. I watch them every Sunday when I can, and I'll be watching them against the Jacksonville Jaguars again. Uh, and I'm a huge Guardians. You know, we, obviously the the former Indians, now the Guardians. Huge Guardians fan. I'm upset that Terry Francona retired because I love him. But I am a diehard Cleveland sports fan, guys, and I, I always will be. John, staying with the orange uh, theme, you have uh, you have spent a day on Princeton's campus this preseason. To me, that's the next step in your evolution as a full-fledged New Jerseyan. Uh, going from Hoboken down to Princeton, all sides of Jersey right there. The Tigers 8-0. They're number eight in the net, which just got released. You, you've paid very close attention to them. What do you think of them and their potential, and what was that day like on campus for you? Well, the day on campus, the day on campus was really unique. I mean, I got to go to, to Cannon Hall and – check out the the dining hall there and and check out the the whole s- setup of some of the social clubs that they true, have. True or false, you were mistaken for a Princeton student at the I eating was, club. Yeah, I was mistaken as a Princeton student at the eating club. I, I showed up to the eating club and obviously I'm wearing a I'm wearing a quarter zip and I got my microphone and a student comes up to me and and says, Oh, I, I haven't seen you in any of my classes. Uh, <laughs> you know who who are you? I said, Oh, you know, my name's John. Nice to meet you. And they go, what sport do you play? <laughs> <laughs> Cause you're in the athletes eating club yeah, there. Cause it was at the athletes eating club. And how did uh, you feel that inquiry? Yeah. I think I said badminton, um, <laughs> you know, or pickleball. I don't know. Um, esports. No squash. Uh, squash is a thing at Princeton, believe it or not. Right. Yeah, I don't think I'd be able to hang with those guys. So <laughs> I, I'll tell you. So I, I just, uh, yeah, I kind of faked it till I made it there at Princeton. Which, if you're on an Ivy League campus and you're fortunate enough to to, to act like a student for a day, that's probably what you should do. And uh, we had a great day. It was awesome to spend time with them. They they came to me and said, "Would you be interested in coming out?" And and uh, of course, I mean, I'll never as as Jerry and Steve and you know. Chris Eisman, you guys know, uh, you, if, if somebody reaches out to you about something, a story, you try to make it work because there's probably something there. And I knew there was something there. I didn't have to be convinced. Come on, they made the Sweet 16 last year. And what I found out was in an era of college basketball where 90% of the programs are worried about NIL and the transfer portal, there's something to be said about player development and roster continuity. Amen. Princeton has both. 
They are a top 25 team. I've ranked them 20th this week in my Fox Sports rankings because I think they have a great sense of who they are. The majority of their wins have come away from Jabwin Jim. And the win on Saturday against Furman. Furman is a really good program, okay? They beat Virginia last year in the NCAA tournament. Princeton was dead to rights. They were buried in that game. They never quit. They play hard for their coach. Mitch Henderson is one of the better coaches in America. And Matt Alaco and Caden Pierce. And guys, Xavier Lee has gone from a guy who, who was like a minimal scorer as, uh, last year to a huge leap, and that is a sign of player development. His shot making is something. But Princeton beat Furman on a day where they shot four for 31 from three. That should tell you that they're not just some Cinderella making threes left and right team. They can win if they're having a bad day from the perimeter. Princeton can, can dance as an at-large. You just heard it from me. The Ivy could be a two-bit league. It's not crazy this year. It's not crazy because when that net ranking comes out and they're top 10 right now, when you're going to get rewarded if you keep, keep, keep winning. Yep, there you go. All right, Steve, you got anything else for John? I have one more for him. Go ahead, you first. Go ahead, Jer. John, let's wrap it up with this. You and I will be uh, co-emceeing. I should say you'll be emceeing and I'll be assisting. Uh, we'll take our show on the road to McLoon's Boathouse in West Orange Thursday evening for the Hardwood Classic Banquet, the third one with Rutgers and Seton Hall. And just a real quick just to tell everybody what's going on there. Uh, it's we're, we're expecting a, a full house. The room is close to sold out, so get your tickets. Uh, representing Rutgers on their panel, Mike Dabney, Geo Baker, two program greats, along with current players Noah Fernandez and Gavin Griffiths for Seton Hall. Program greats John Morton and Eugene Harvey, joined by current guards Kadari Richmond and Alamir Dawes. John, you and I have done this event now three years running. This will be year three. What do you want to say about it and what's been most me- the memorable part of being involved in this for you? Well, the most memorable part is the stories, is the stories. And, and Jerry, you're an elite storyteller and are able to go down memory lane to a, a level that's untouched with this rivalry. And we hear stories that we have never heard before. Right. Never heard before. So, I mean, there are so many that, that come to mind. We don't have enough hours in the day. <laughs> to describe them, but I I just I look at, at this banquet as a really unique opportunity to hear from legends. You know, we've we heard stories from Phil Sellers about Rutgers history and and about just the early days of, of the program and and Dick Vital. Dick Vital and and the atmospheres and you know, I love hearing old gym stories. Uh, you know, I think talking about the barn and the and and kind of going down that road. And then for Seton Hall, you know, I I, I think the Dan Calandrillo story of of how he talked to Shaheen Holloway before Shaheen's commitment to Seton Hall, yep. and you know, played a role in in convincing. Uh, and then the old stories of of just the '80s from guys like Jerry Walker. The point. You get things, folks, that you never have heard before. These these guys are comfortable at a banquet when they're not on, necessarily on camera or it's it's all of it's going into an article. They're willing to share some things that maybe they've never shared because they just were not as comfortable sharing it. So we will have never before told stories. I love 
some of the things from from the former guys about what the game meant to them. These guys, a lot of times, they they know each other. They know each other's families because they played during the summer at New York Parks or they played locally in New Jersey, AAU, or whatever it might be. And we get all of that at the banquet. It is Thursday night. It's at McLoon's. It starts at 6.30 with a social hour. And when I say social hour, I'm telling you, the current, the former players, they're going to interact with you. You go up to them and you want to talk with them, you get the, your chance to speak with them. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a memorable night. And you will get exclusive access to program greats from Rutgers and Seton Hall that you're not going to get anywhere else. That's right. You can find tickets. There's a few left. Uh, John and I on our Twitter accounts, you can find them there. Uh, the front office is the group that puts it on. They do a great job. And the Boardwalk Trophy will be there, John. So people are welcome to pose with the Boardwalk Trophy for photos. You know, you could pose with John Morton or Mike Dabney for a photo with the trophy. They'll be happy to do that. So going to be lots of fun. John, this is our week. Thanks so much for coming on. It would just it would not be uh, the Garden State Hardwood Classic and Jersey College Basketball without you knee-deep involved. So honorary New Jersey. No, no, no. You're a full-fledged New Jerseyan, my brother. Thanks so much, and we will see you a couple times over the next week. You can hear him Saturday night on the call. Fox Sports 1, Rutgers Seton Hall, 8.30. Don't miss it. Thanks, John. Thank you, guys. Love the show. Anytime. All right. So thanks so much to John Fanta, busy guy, for joining us. That was fun, Steve. We're all revved up and ready to go. Chris Eisman, uh, we'll welcome him in. He's the patience of a saint. Uh, has been waiting here, listening, and the Syracuse shout-out. There you go, Chris. That's you, right? You're, you're a Syracuse alum. Uh, am I? I didn't realize. <laughs> so we uh we don't see Syracuse down here too much anymore in the hardwood. They no. used to come down all the time. Of course, the program's in a different place now, but that's for another podcast, Chris. We bring you on to talk uh Rutgers, the big game over the weekend, Rutgers, Illinois. Illinois comes in ranked 24th in the country, wins by 18 at Jersey Mike's Arena. You were there on the coverage. What were your impressions of this game, both for Rutgers and Illinois, and, and what you think of the fallout from it? Yeah, I mean, listen, Jerry, you look at that game, and and the story really is about the rebounding disparity, right? I mean, Illinois had 55 rebounds, Rutgers had 27. Illinois had 19 offensive rebounds, and Rutgers had 18 defensive. I mean, so that was really the story of the game, and it was a surprise considering that that's Rutgers' pride, you know, and and is is rebounding, is defense, um, and rebounding just wasn't there. And after the game, you know, Steve Peichel and and the players, um, you know, Austin Williams specifically just talked about, you know, we need to be tougher. We need to be more physical in these games you know, these big 10 battles uh, to have any chance on the boards. And obviously Rutgers wasn't tough enough in that game. Uh, Illinois is a good team. Again, ranked number 24, as you said, Jerry, Karen Shannon Jr. Just did a little bit of everything or a lot of bit of everything, I guess you could say, on both ends of the court. Uh, he played really well and Rutgers just really couldn't limit him. And then as, you know, uh, John Panta was discussing too, they need more out of their interior. They need more out of Cliff Amore. Um, you know, he needs to get better at finishing around the rim. He just, he had some misses, miss dunks, a couple of miss layups and, and the entire Rutgers team had, had missed layups too. That's an area that's been kind of dragging them down a little bit all season to a degree. Obviously they're still winning games for the most part, but they have to clean that up as they get into the thick of their schedule, because that's going to really, really hurt them as the competition gets, you know, tougher and tougher. So again, there was, there was a lot for Rutgers, you know, to, to improve on, um, on the bright side, I thought Austin Williams played really well. You know, he, he kind of sparked that that comeback in the first half that, you know, brought Rutgers to, I think, was it was within six points or so. Yeah, um, they got it down to four. Yeah, four points. 
Um, but then after halftime, they just couldn't keep up and, and Illinois pulled away. Um, so certainly a lot of areas that Rutgers really needs to clean up on. And again, you know, you get you get doubled up on the boards and you shoot 33 percent. That's that's not a good recipe to win a Big Ten basketball game against the number 14, uh, number 24 team in the country. So, you know, again, this is a big week coming up. Rutgers has to win at least one of these next two games against Wake Forest or Seton Hall. Obviously, ideally for them, they'd win both, but they need to lose one in the next two. Let's talk about the big picture for Rutgers. You know, you you also cover Rutgers football. So a busy week for you with the the playing uh, Miami. Nice juicy matchup there with the Miami's got a big brand. I know they weren't what they once were. Game was in Miami though. <laughs> right, right. You'll, you'll be freezing in the uh, the open air press box up at Yankee Stadium in a few weeks for the pinstripe ball. But the, as someone who covers college football, where like every game is in, the stakes are enormous compared to college basketball. You know, it's a thirty one game season. Rutgers has eighteen Big Ten games. This is just one. Uh, how do you put it in perspective? I know there's been a, there's some panic on the part of the fan base. No, no one wants to see their team get run off the floor at home like that, right? Uh, and Rutgers now has at Wake Forest, at Seton Hall. They open up with a net of 72. Long way to go there. But uh, how do you put this into perspective, like what the one game means for Rutgers, and then what is the task at hand for them this week at Wake and then at Seton Hall? Yeah, listen, I mean, again, it's one game against a really good team. Um, it, it's not going to make or break the season. There's still a long way to go. It was a Big Ten opener. You know, Rutgers has plenty of chances. That's the big thing that we've talked about this every year. Playing in the Big Ten, it's like a blessing and a curse because it's really tough. It's really tough to win games. Um, but the blessing is is that you can win a game and, and make up a lot of ground. So, you know, that that's the good thing about it. They can recover from this. I think in a lot of ways, and, and the players talked about this afterward, that that game kind of showed Rutgers where it is. It was a good kind of a measuring stick type of game, you know, and, and it told them where they really need to improve. And, again, a lot of these guys are, are kind of still trying to figure each other out. You know, they're kind of still trying to um, develop chemistry and, and on the court. And, you know, they're, some of these guys who transferred in are learning what it's going to take to win a Big Ten basketball game. This is a whole other level. So, again, they, they can make this up. They've got a long way to go still. It's one game, but certainly some things that Rutgers needs to improve on. And the next two games will offer them opportunities to, you know, go on the road and, and, and win some, you know, you know, for them, I guess, as I said, hopefully win two. But, you know, you try and get one of these next two games on the road at least. That's a very good point about the Rutgers having these new guys. And this was their first taste of Big Ten basketball. There's going to be an adjustment for, you know, your in-transfers uh, and freshmen too, which – they're, they have four of those guys as key guys in their rotation. Uh, all right, quickly to, to Seton Hall, Steve. They're at Baylor, uh, and then we'll talk mid-majors. They're at Baylor uh, Tuesday night. Baylor's got the number one offense in the country. They're averaging 92 points a game. Like, what, if anything, would be the expectations for Seton Hall at Baylor? We know Rutgers kind of has to win one game this week, uh, at least one game. What are the expectations for Seton Hall at Baylor, if any, uh, as a warm-up to the uh, Rutgers game? Is there any correlation there at all? Or do you just go down there and, and maybe you get lucky or hope for a good showing? What do you think, Steve, is the mindset here? Well, I mean, listen, I I think there's value for Seton Hall in a really good showing on the road, even if it's not a win. Right. Um, you know, I, I think especially after the way things went out on the West Coast, you know, I, I think for them to go in there, play tough, you know, be able to hang with these guys and – play some better defense. You know, it's going to be tough against these guys, but play some better defense and see where that takes you. I, I think that's basically the expectation right now is, is go in, put in a good performance. I think there is a moral victory for Seton Hall here. It's a good point. Just even you could even have momentum in a, in a good showing and a loss coming off a game like that, where no one expects you to win or even really compete probably. So that is a very good point. Uh, just a historical note. 
this is the the fourth year of the big uh, Big East Big Twelve battle. Seton Hall's only played at home one time. They've played three road games out of four. They're the only team in the Big East that's only had one home game. So we know Kevin Willard always hated his schedule. Shaheen Holloway, I think, is hating his schedule. Maybe it's something in the water, but that's going to come up too. And then, of course, on the flip side, it'll be nice for them to be home you know, at the Rock on Saturday. Steve, uh, what else? Mid-major world, New Jersey mid-major world. We touched on Princeton briefly, 8-0, you know, the huge win over Furman. What else jumps out at you from New Jersey's mid-majors over the past week? Well, you know, FDU uh, got to 5-5, five and five, beat NJIT. Uh, you know, I think one of the biggest takeaways from the week for me is how badly Ryder has struggled early in the season. They were the MAC preseason favorites. There was a lot of hype that they were going to step into the void uh, left by Iona with with Rick Pitino leaving. But so far, you haven't seen that. And, and recent play has been a little bit alarming. They lost at Fairfield, which had been struggling. Lost to Fairfield. They, you know, they had lost before that to to Stony Brook and Siena, and they got blown out by Maryland. Um, so a little bit of a worry about what's going on there in Lawrenceville. We'll, we'll see if they can right the ship, but you know, they, they really have underperformed so far. Yeah, they haven't won a Division One game yet. They lost seven straight, and then and then St. Peter's goes and goes two and zero. St. Peter's loses to Rutgers by thirty, and then goes up and gets two games on the northern northern upstate New York swing which we talked about is difficult and you know, they're, they're winning games in the low fifties. So good for them. So you never, Steve, you covered the Mac for a number of years. You never know what's going to happen in that league. No, no. And I think it's wide open this year. And, and uh, again, you know, it would be nice to see a team like St. Peter's, you know, be in the hunt, you know, in a wide open league. And, you know, I think we saw some signs early in the season that they have some pieces, if they can put it together, you know, that, that would be nice. Guys, closing with this, both of you guys. Any, any. Uh, see, it's it's tough. There's a, there's a ball to be played this week, right? Rutgers has a road game. Seton Hall has a road game. Without having those results in, any inkling? I'm not going to ask you to pick a score, but any any feel on who the favorite is, or you know what 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 you would say about the possible outcome of this Garden State Harvard Classic Saturday? You know, I, I I personally, I think it's going to be a really good game. I. I can see Rutgers stepping up in this game. I really can. And, and I say that because of the way things went down last year at the rack and, you know, really wanting to come in and, and, and kind of make amends. I, I, I would look for a better showing from Rutgers, you know, than they gave over the weekend. Chris. Yeah, I think it's going to be a great game. I, I do think that I agree with Steve, with Steve. I think that Rutgers is going to, I know, show up in this game. I think they'll get more out of Cliff and Maury inside. Um, and that'll kind of you know help them be, make the difference in this game. But I think it's going to be close. I don't think it's going to either team's going to run away with anything. They generally are pretty close. Again, without having the midweek results in, uh, I would just give Seton Hall a slight edge because they're home, and Rutgers hasn't won in, at the Rock in ten years. Uh, Seton Hall's played really well there in this series, and Shaheen Holloway has played and coached well against Rutgers as a player, assistant, and now a head coach. So I give them a slight intangible edge. I do think on the court it's a toss-up. I mean, I think these teams are about even in terms of experience, talent, cohesion, uh, very similar teams. And they're, you know, they're really, I think they're literally one spot apart in Ken Palm. So that should give you an idea of so it should be fun. Never a dull moment. Uh, this is our week, guys. Big week for Jersey College Hoops. Thanks to John Fanta. Couldn't do it without him. And uh Enjoy the enjoy the hoops in the Garden State, and we'll be back next week to break it all down. This is Jersey Jump Shot.